Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today on the podcast, we have Hannah Smolinski. Hannah is a CPA and founder of Clara CFO Group, a virtual CFO and consulting services firm providing small businesses with financial clarity as they grow. Her experience working for one of the world's largest accounting firms inspired her to bring that level of financial expertise to the small business community through financial strategy, best practices, and knowledge to realize their missions. Hannah is also a senior advisor to Upside Financial and its PPP forgiveness product, PPP Advisor Pro. This episode is chock full of important and topical financial information for small businesses and entrepreneurs. Up to the minute details about PPP, PPP2, and EIDL loans, and so much more. So coming up, Hannes Malinsky, the virtual CFO, on White Collar Week. I hope you will join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer. So I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi folks and welcome to White Collar Week. Um, this is uh, really a gift to us to have uh, Hannah Smolinski with us uh, for a few reasons. Uh, the first is that, that this is our first podcast of season two. So we were very particular in choosing who we wanted to have as our first guest for season two. And two, the topic is very relevant um, to what's going on out there in the world and especially relevant to me um, because we'll be talking about PPP and EIDL and SBA loan fraud, among other things. And, um, and as most people listening or watching this podcast know, I went to prison for that. And the third thing is that I was a guest on Hannah's podcast uh, just a few days ago, and it's already taken off. And so this is kind of returning the favor mm-hmm. and a turnaround. But but today we get to talk about Hannah. So uh, without further ado, this is Hannah Smolinski, and she's a virtual CFO. So I'm going to let her explain what that is. But uh, she was a CPA in a major accounting firm. And she's gone out on her own, which I really admire because we are very pro-entrepreneur. And um, now she provides her services to small businesses and small business people and probably others all over the country. And uh, I'll let her introduce herself and explain all that. So Hannah, welcome to White Collar Week. We're so happy to have you. Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you did a pretty good job introducing me, I'd say. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes uh, other people do a better job explaining what I do than I do myself. Um, but yeah, so uh, my mm, I'm a CPA in Washington State, and I own a small business focused company. I'm small business myself, and then we also smoke focus on small businesses, uh, providing virtual CFO services, like you like you mentioned. Um, but we kind of focus on businesses that are smaller than typical where you would normally maybe not have a full-time CFO on staff. So we kind of focus on businesses that, you know, are, you know, the entrepreneur is typically running the finance show, but 
Um, they might have a bookkeeper or a tax accountant on their team, but they're trying to kind of take that next step into getting financial strategy for their business. And that's where this kind of virtual CFO role comes into play. So we do it on an extremely fractional basis and then just really try to support the CEO and the entrepreneur in the best way that we possibly can to help make them like help them make the best final financial decisions possible. So um, with that, it's come into it, it's great because we get to help with all sorts of things and taking out loans is one <laughs> and helping advise on that is one. So that's kind of how I guess I guess we got connected. Um, I do have a YouTube channel. Um, which is kind of where I've, I've been able to help a lot of small businesses for um, basically provide as much information as we possibly can around some of this PPP stuff, EIDL. And yeah, that's kind of how, how it all came full circle and we got to meet. You say that you help people who are um, in the process of, uh, of making, taking a step or, or planning the next stage of their business. But it feels like everybody's doing that right now. Like you're, we've been forced into that situation. So everybody's on high alert. Um, and it's not necessarily in taking out a PPP or, or, or an EIDL loan, but all kinds of things are coming at us in, in from all different directions. And maybe everybody's business really needs to be looked at carefully right now to see if it's going to. Uh, survive and succeed in whatever the new order of, of doing business is. Do you think do you agree with that? Yeah, I would say this is kind of an interesting time for planning. Um, I, I think whenever you have a level of uncertainty, like we have with the economy with, um, you know, you don't know when a closure is going to come back. You don't know necessarily like when your customers are going to want to come back or how they're going to be going to want to be served anymore. Um, we've got, a, a really interesting dynamic um, that all small businesses are facing, which is kind of interesting that everybody's kind of in the same situation. Um, typically, you just have people who are running on status quo, you know, it, same as it's always been. Let's just keep doing what we've always been doing. What we've been doing has been working. Let's keep doing it. But now what we've been doing maybe isn't working anymore. So now it's how does a business evolve? How does a business um, adapt? to the current environment. And, um, you know, as small business owners, it's not like we have teams on our, on our side that are, you know, forecasting trends and trying to help them, (laughs) trying to help them figure out like what's next. Usually it's just one person at the head, or maybe like you have a partnership, maybe a couple people leading a company. And, you know, we're trying to do, trying to do a lot and making the right decisions to, you know, keep the business afloat. So definitely unique times right now. So um, I, th- I think this is probably, since you mentioned teams, it's a good time for our first shout outs. And shout out one is uh, Genevieve Rafla from um, Upside, who's hanging out in, in, in the background listening to us right <laughs> now. And she's, uh, you're part of uh, the Upside uh, financial team. Um, and so that's different from your business, but you're integrated with them. So uh, why don't you just give us a little advance on what that's about, and we'll come back to it later in the later in the show. Sure, yeah. So I I own and run Clara CFO Group, and that's my company. But I've kind of partnered with Upside Financials. Upside Financial um, has 
basically kind of recognize the need that small business owners need help through the PPP process and especially through forgiveness, mm-hmm. how um, complicated the rules have gotten. Um, and, and I'm just going to say PPP for the people who maybe have not received these loans, it's called the Paycheck Protection Program. And it was part of the kind of first economic stimulus that was well, really kind of the second package, the CARES Act that came out back in March. And it was a huge, um, a huge program doling out billions of dollars for small businesses in particular and encouraging them to keep people on payroll. That way those people wouldn't go on unemployment and, you know, hopefully it would bolster the businesses enough to help them go forward. But the big thing about this loan is that it was a hundred percent forgivable if you used it for the right things. So upside, um, they, they're, they have a business travel company and they were recognizing the need that all of their, you know, businesses that stopped traveling very abruptly also needed PPP loans. So, um, they are a software company essentially, and they basically realized that they needed to help their clients and their customers start to, um, get these loans and then get them forgiven. And the forgiveness part is one of the most complicated parts of the whole thing because there's eligible costs that are, you can get forgiven and there's non-eligible ones. And, you know, there's ratios you need to consider and lots of things like that. And, you know, it can be different based on your tax entity type, lots of complexity along with the forgiveness rules. And then the rules were changing constantly or not necessarily changing, but evolving more detail would come out. So, um, upside designed, um, a, a product to help people through the process, but also the service. So the service of actually having an individual talking to a business owner, which was one of the big things that attracted me to, um, becoming like part of their team. So I'm a senior advisor now to their PPP forgiveness product is I recognize how many people just needed somebody to talk to because small business owners, <laughs> as you know, cause you've been there too. And as like I see every day, a lot of times they don't have somebody on their side helping them make these decisions or helping them walk through any kind of process. So, um, I partnered with them to kind of make sure that like people could get access to that t- service essentially. So I advise their product now. So I'll actually go in and be like, Hey, we need, we need maybe a little bit more detail around this box or that box. And then we also get to have conversations with people like you. So that's the relationship. <laughs> I'm, gl- I'm glad you explained that from the outset. Um, I'll, I'll give shout out number two to Chloe uh, Coppola, who's on, on my team who's also hanging out in the background and I don't want her to get mad at me for not shouting her out. Um, one of the things I've said to you now, uh, we've probably spoken three or four times by zoom. And one of the things I've said to you a few times is that you don't look like a CPA and, and, um, that's a compliment by the way. And, <laughs> and, and, and one of the reasons I, I, I've said that a few times to you is that, in my world, people are telling me all the time, you know, you don't look like a criminal or you don't look like a minister, which is probably true in both cases, <laughs> at least in people's minds. But um, on your social media, um, your, uh, the way you conduct yourself, the, your amount of uh, accessibility or your kind of uh, um, 
bubbly personality. Another compliment, by the way. <laughs> um, it's not usually what people think of as a CPA or a CFO. And I, and I find you very approachable, you know, very, very accessible, which I think is really important when you're working with someone closely, especially like a virtual CFO. So why don't you give us a little background? Like what, what, what interested you about going into uh, accounting and being a math person mm -hmm. and, and, um, and what intrigues you about kind of figuring all this stuff out and helping people with it? Mm -hmm. Um, that's funny that you say that because for a long time, I didn't want to be an accountant because I had a, I had an, a vision of what an accountant looked like in my head. And it was not, first of all, did not look like a fun job. Um, because I just imagined, you know, a, a 10 key calculator and rolls and rolls and rolls exactly. of paper, you know, like <laughs> filling up an office and that sounded like torture to me. So, and I actually had a job very shortly in college that literally looked like that. And I was like, what have I done? <laughs> what have I done? Um, but I, um, so my, my kind of background is, um, I, I've always kind of been a little bit more focused in math. Like it's, it's definitely more where my brain functions. Well, mm -hmm. I, you know, ask me to write a poem and I will fail every time, but <laughs> ask me to do some math and I will totally be comfortable with that. Um, but just kind of during school, I kind of in, enjoyed the math and sciences and kind of, um, just recognized that that was something that I was looking into, um, thought about, you know, maybe sciences, maybe some type of disease prevention or disease study, which would be really interesting to be in right now. But, um, and it ended up kind of looking through and, um, I had, I, I always liked business. I always kind of thought it would be interesting to own my own business. My dad was actually an entrepreneur and was also an engineer and owned a company that he grew to a fairly decent size. And so I kind of always saw that. And I saw that he did, he was able to be a leader and um, also kind of have some flexibility and kind of do his own thing and not kind of be beholden to <laughs> another boss, mm -hmm. which I always thought was kind of a, a cool idea. I never really thought of myself to, um, you know, go through, become a CPA and then start my own thing. Um, but in college, I was kind of directed in my business classes. I thought I would go into marketing. Um, I had an accounting professor sit me down and say, no, you don't need to be in marketing. You need to be in accounting. <laughs> she was like, if this makes sense to you, you need to be in accounting because this yeah. doesn't make sense to a lot of people. <laughs> so um, I kind of, I, I had another mentor friend of ours, um, sit me down and I, I, I took some convincing to get there because I didn't want to be an accountant. Accountants are boring. I don't want to be an accountant. Um, a family friend sat me down and said, Hannah, accounting is the language of business mm -hmm. and you can do anything with it. If you learn the language of business, then it's never going to hurt you. So I was like, okay, okay. Like as long as I'm not locked into some boring career of being an accountant, <laughs> then I will, I will take that. So I ended up doing that. Um, you go to school, you do your five years of school in order to sit for a CPA exam. Mm -hmm. So I did my undergraduate in um, accounting, and then I came out to the University of Washington and did my master's out here in accounting so that I could sit for my CPA exam. And along the way, did um, public big four public accounting uh, internship, and then sat for my CPA exam as soon as I could. So um, past that, which was a fun, 
a fun time. Wait, so, um, so, so you were actually sitting and counting 101 at one point and they're showing you like T accounts and things like that and going, oh my God, this is like, this is torture. But at some point, it all kind of comes together because the macro and the micro all kind of come together. And, 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 and you realize that you can start to not, not that this is a path to really help people. And this is a path where, where um, understanding and language all kind of come together and you can be a, a translator of ideas. Does that, does that make sense? I would say I wasn't that with it, mm -hmm. thinking about it from that perspective as being, you know, a software in college. <laughs> I was thinking, this is apparently a pretty well-paying job. Maybe I should try to pursue this. <laughs> I think I was more along that track, honestly. Um, but it was making sense to me. And I was like, well, this is kind of something that I'm good at. Maybe I should just keep doing it. Um, but once I kind of got I, I did the big four thing, which was fascinating, you know, being able to go into public companies, auditing, I, I took the audit, you, you typically take tax or audit, if you're going to go the traditional route, I always preferred audit. But that's kind of, I think, where a lot of times auditors are not your typical accountants, yeah. because you actually have to develop a fairly decent amount of interpersonal skills, because you're walking into somebody else's company. Mm -hmm. And especially as a young person coming in and looking over their books, somebody who may have been in the job for 20 years plus or something, and you're trying to come in and essentially be their friend in order to make the audit process as smooth as possible, <laughs> which is always kind of, it's a little bit of a tricky um, relationship, but you do end up talking to a lot of people. You end up interviewing a lot of people. You end up um, you know, developing a team dynamic because usually you're in audit teams and it's not so isolating as like a typical, you know, in the room with tons of 10 key tape around, <laughs> around you. So um, I enjoyed that, but I did, I did feel the disconnect between um, being able to actually help and, um, you know, the work that I was doing because mm -hmm. I was a lower person on the totem pole. I was working my way up, also working on the regular 70 to 80 hour weeks and not really having much of a life outside of that. So I ended up deciding to leave and work for a small business. And it was at that point in time that I realized like, I almost kind of had like a pride of like, Oh, I need to work with these like big publicly traded companies. Small businesses are not that important because, you know, they're not big and fancy and, you know, being talked about in the news and whatnot. Um, but what I realized like working with smaller businesses was that they're more important in a lot of ways because they're super tied directly to someone's livelihood typically. And you don't have these layers of bureaucracy and you, I mean, it's uh, the flexibility of a small business is one of the things that like intrigues me and it gets me excited. But then because you can, you can make a suggestion and it can, automatically change the trajectory of a business or, you know, one decision could be, um, could, could just have a greater effect. So I really kind of started to develop the love of helping small businesses. And that's kind of the genesis of my company. One, one of my business professors in law school um, explained it as a big business is like a super tanker that takes 
six miles to turn around. But a small business can be agile like a PT boat and can almost turn on its own axis. Mm-hmm. And your job when you're representing them is to actually help them be, give them, provide them enough information, enough base to actually be able to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. And really, it's on them whether or not they're going to make the decision or not. We're, we're just the professionals. Correct. And um, I found that to be, tr- to be true in one of the really fascinating parts of representing small businesses, which is what I did, by the way, for most of my career. Oh, nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's really true. Um, and when I talk to people as I'm growing my company and looking to hire more people, I that's one of the things I hear a lot from people who've worked at larger businesses and then they're leaving the word I hear. And it's actually one of my core values is impact. Mm-hmm. Like I want to have more impact when I'm helping and I do all this work and, you know, I'm presenting it to somebody. I want it to make a difference. And I think that's kind of what we all want with our work, right? We want it to mean something in the end. <laughs> so, um, you know, here with this type of work, it's, I mean, every day I'm able to, you know, give somebody a little piece of clarity, give somebody like a little bit like more um, foundation for making a decision and helping them feel better about it. It's not just, you know, gut based, <laughs> gut based on all the decisions they're trying to do. So. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's exactly what the CFO role does too. So, my my word of the month, I learned from you, by the way, is the word clarity that you just used ah. <laughs> because that's a word that you keep coming back to, and even on your website, that's a very it's a word you highlight, and you even have clarity calls. Mm-hmm. So, why don't you explain a little bit about what that is, and and then how how you um you're available to people in, in smaller or larger chunks and what that's about. Yeah. So um, clarity has always kind of been one of the things that I thought has been important about this role. Um, when I first started my company, it was under a different name, but it was really more, kind of more about like a vision of like bringing brightness, clarity, and relief to the small business owner that I was working with. Um, and because I think entrepreneurs are typically, especially small business owners, they typically are really good at whatever they do. And whatever they do is great. That's usually what the business is based off of, but not they don't necessarily have financial backgrounds oftentimes, or it's something that like a lot of times gets pushed into a closet. Let's don't look at it because it's confusing, or I don't know what to do next. So I'm just going to go with my gut. Um, but the CFO role, it helps kind of take the emotion out of business decision-making and it helps us just put things to numbers. Because sometimes when you just see it in numbers and it's very clear, like this is a better profitable decision, or this is a better profitable decision, it helps take the clouds away from, you know, the emotion or, or fear or whatever it may be. And we can kind of bring that directly forward and just say, hey, let's let's just look at look at the facts. Now there might be emotional things that maybe might make you make a different decision, but at least like we can we can provide clarity and then you can still decide where you want to go. Um, so I do this through usually ongoing via uh, CFO services. 
So we, you know, take on a client and then we get to know their business and we meet monthly and we're on a nice regular cadence of making sure that like we're, you know, keeping a pulse on the business essentially. Um, and then I do have clarity calls. So this is kind of where um, it's a one time, hey, I'm going through this, you know, let's get somebody else's opinion. Let's get like a third party to come in and look at it. And that's what we can do. We've been doing a lot of those around PPP. So it's not like people necessarily need a CFO. I've actually done clarity calls with other CFOs of other companies sure. um, because it's like, you know, this expertise that we have at this point um, where it's just kind of a quick shot of, hey, let's get a professional in and ask questions and try to get things clarified. So if that can save a business owner, you know, hours and hours and hours of research or, you know, some type of level of concern and just get some questions answered, we offer, we offer those for that. So uh, why don't we jump into PPPs a little bit? Okay. And um, so just a little bit of framework in that conversation, because I think that people are confused right now as to first draw PPPs, second draw PPPs. Can I still qualify for a first draw PPP? Um, what's an EIDL and how to, uh, and is that a good thing or a bad thing to be taking, especially... And, and can I do it at the same time I'm taking a PPP? I'm just providing some framework here. Um, a lot of people are asking questions about uh, employee uh, um, retention tax credits and how that, what, is there a strategy around that and PPPs, for example? Uh, we both know there is. So, um, <laughs> and, um, and then if we have time, we can talk um, a little bit on the, on the back end about some of the other features that have come out in the the, the legislation, like the um, uh, like the Family uh, Sick Act, uh, I think I'm probably uh, not getting it the right title, and maybe some of the um, the new legislation uh, around um, travel and business expenses, where we can actually deduct 100 percent of them now, which is, <laughs> which is super cool. Um, but I mean, let, let's dive right into PPP for existing borrowers. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I already have a PPP loan. I got it in, uh, um, in the spring or summer of last year. And where, where are we now with, with, the, with PPP for existing borrowers? Sure. So, um, kind of the, with the CARES Act, an initial amount of money was kind of put into the, put into the bank of PPP essentially, or the SBA was allotted a certain amount of money to distribute. Um, and then they, they got a second round of funding, funding. So like that total ended up being like 600 and something billion dollars. Um, initially, basically almost any small business and, and small starts is small is kind of relative because fairly big businesses got this money. Um, <clears throat> uh, were allowed, they, if you had under 500 employees, um, you were potentially able to apply for up to $10 million of, of a loan. Um, but this loan, like I mentioned before, was forgivable if you use it for the right thing. So a lot of people got money in the first round. I would say the maybe slightly more advanced business owner was more on, like, on it right away because they had somebody in their court from a financial perspective saying, Hey, this is coming down the pike. You need to, you know, you need to apply for this. Um, so those people who got their loans, they initially got their loans and 
Um, most of them have used it by now because if you got it, it was first come first serve. So most of those people, um, got it in May, April, June. And there was a few stragglers like through August because the, the program officially closed August 8th. Um, but most people got it there. And then you had uh, initially only eight weeks up to spend, to spend the money, but then they expanded it to 24 weeks. So if you got your money, April, May, June, we're now past that 24 week period of when they should have spent the money. Um, so those people are all right now in a place that they're looking for forgiveness. So they're, you know, wanting it to, well, they back in December, they were wanting to get it off their books. So it's not showing as a loan anymore, just get it forgiven and get it done. Um, but there's still, you know, confusion about that. And right now we're actually waiting for an, uh, for the SBA to, um, put out another forgiveness form for loans under 150,000 because they've promised it with the, um, uh, what's the, I, I, for some reason, the, the name of the economic aid act, <laughs> the economic aid act is what passed in December. I'm like trying to get them all, you know, all uh, squared away in my head. I'll, sometimes, um, the economic aid act, which passed in December of 2020, that, um, kind of refreshed the program because it was closed. And so they've, they've given more money to the PPP. So people who didn't get an initial loan can potentially get another loan. And then people who got a first loan could qualify for a second draw if they can prove a revenue decline of up to of, of 25% or more mm -hmm. from 2019 to 2020. And um, it's a little bit more complex than that, but kind of that's high level. You do have to have prove some kind of, you know, loss of revenue, some sort of hard hit indicator, <laughs> if you will. Um, so with that, um, now initial borrowers back from the original round, they're looking for forgiveness. And then a bunch of people are looking for initial applications. So right now I have tons of people coming to me and saying, hey, I need help with something. And I'm like, application or forgiveness? I, I'm like, <laughs> we need to know. And, and if you're applying for the first round, it's under the first round rules still. It's not under the second round rules, right? Well, that, that's kind of an interesting thing because when they, when they drafted the Economic Aid Act, they actually wrote in there some language that said, we are going to change this as if it was originally enacted in the CARES Act. Mm -hmm. So, for example, they've added now additional non-payroll costs that are allowable under PPP. Mm -hmm which tons of people would have benefited from had they known back then <laughs> that it could be used for that back in, you know, the original CARES Act. But what they're saying now is, you know, we can, you can now include, you know, software costs. You can now include PPE costs. Like, you know, you're buying face masks and hand sanitizer sure. and building, building out certain things for your um, employees to be safe. Mm -hmm. You can potentially use these costs. Um, so the new round of borrowers can use those, but then also the old round when they're applying for forgiveness, let's say somebody was at, you know, 90% of, they spent the money on 90% of the things they thought they were going to have to pay 10% back of their loan, but now they can go back and be like, oh, actually I did spend a bunch of money on these now allowable costs. Mm -hmm. So now we can potentially achieve full forgiveness. So we've got some of that. The, the rules for forgiveness are now kind of blanket for everybody whether you got an initial loan or, or the second draw. 
on, on a practical level, since the costs can be spread out over, um, you can look at 24 weeks, aren't most small businesses really going to spend all of the money on payroll? If, if, if you have active payroll, obviously, and you're looking for forgiveness, isn't almost 100% of that money really going to be on payroll? That's what we're seeing in practicality um, for businesses who are still in operations. Mm -hmm. I think if you were in a situation maybe where you had to close and you're trying to just get the loan forgiven, you know, and you're trying to wrap up all your paperwork, you might not be able to reach it. But when we applied for these loans, we applied with two and a half months of payroll costs. But then all of a sudden we have almost six, six months to spend it. Right. So yeah, most times people are able to spend the whole loan on payroll costs. Mm -hmm. So they've changed the the forgiveness uh, paperwork requirements so that if you have a loan of $150,000 or less, it's greatly simplified the um, the forgiveness uh, paperwork. So why, why don't you explain what that is and what we're waiting for right now and why we're kind of in this little gray zone? Yeah, right. Right now, I wish I could tell you exactly what that that one page forgiveness application is going to say. Um, we have a little bit of a precedent of what that could look like because we had a one page forgiveness form called the 3508S that came out. Um, I can't remember exactly when it came out, but that was kind of the last forgiveness. They had an original forgiveness application. Then they made an easier one. Then they made an easier one, but it was only for loans of $50,000 or less. So I'll be curious to see if they essentially just take that form and up, up basically up, up the dollar amount to around 150,000. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that it's going to be one page. We know that it's going to require less documentation to apply for forgiveness, but we also know that there's going to be some certifications there which are basically statements that the business owner has to sign their name to saying that they've used the money in the correct way that, you know, they understand that they need to keep their documentation that they haven't used it for anything illegal, (laughs) those types of statements, um, which basically is requiring the business owner to, you know, promise to the government that they haven't done anything wrong. Um, so that's where they kind of tie you into, you know, making sure that you can make those statements and make them honestly. So I, f- I feel like this is one of the huge takeaways right now from, from uh, this podcast, because let's say I have a small business and I took out a loan, a PPP loan of $150,000 or less. And now the government is not making me do any financial calculations. I don't have to prove any of that um, in a uh, in a forgiveness application. And it looks to me like I'm I'm good. I don't have to. There's no work involved. Mm-hmm. And and but I've heard from people that the government could come looking for the the paperwork later somewhere down the line. So what is it that a small business and a small business person really should be doing to uh, mind their P's and Q's, to put, to put four walls around this and to be able to protect themselves, their, their, um, their forgiveness, and God forbid, uh, the potential for uh, um, potentially a, uh, maybe a fraud prosecution down the road if they've made false statements, 
what's the right thing for them to be doing right now? Mm -hmm. Um, Document, document, document (laughs) is what I like to say. Um, I think documentation can be understated in this type of situation. And um, when it comes to these types of large programs too, um, I, I, I mean, the SBA is fully aware that there's lots of fraud occurring. Um, and they've, they've chosen to do certain things in order to make this a quick rollout, in order to get money to people quickly. They've had to reduce controls. So you don't have as many um, things being checked before people are getting money. So um, my assumption is that there's going to be lots of review on the back end. Um, and they've told people that uh, kind of depending on where you are, we're going to need to hold on to documentation for four to six years after you receive this money, there becomes, you know, a time when they're just going to, you know, not look into it anymore. But I mean, this is pretty standard with IRS audits. I mean, like, or IRS, like if you put something on your tax return, you should be able to support it with underlying documentation, Mm -hmm. anything that's on your tax return. And that can be, you know, anywhere from like three to 10 years that you might need to hold on to things. So, um, you know, keeping receipts of what you spend the PPP money on, keeping your payroll journals for the time period during your covered period. Really, like if you got a if you got a PPP loan in 2020, you need to be saving all your payroll journals from 2019 and 2020. You just should. <laughs> it's just you might not have to ever show it to anybody, but it should be somewhere in your documentation. I recommend everybody having like a quote unquote audit file where it's padded with anything extra somebody might might need your tax, um, your tax quarterly tax forms, like your 941s for um, during that period of time. Uh, if you have a state unemployment agency, which you should, um, saving those quarterly reports. If you've spent the money on rent, make sure you have your, you know, either a canceled check or a statement showing that you've paid the rent from a clear amount of time. Save the bank statements during that time. I mean, you really can't go overboard on the documentation that you want to save on this. Um, I actually have like a multiple series on my YouTube channel on just documentation because it's, to me, it's straightforward because I was an auditor. I was like, oh, of course you need a statement and then you need the underlying receipt and then you need, (laughs) it's it's very straightforward. But most people have never either gone through an audit, they don't know what that's like, or they wouldn't necessarily think about like evidence of a transaction but we need evidence for everything that we spend this money on. So you need to think about like, how do you prove that that actually occurred? And with the PPP, it's really interesting because you have to prove that you were, especially non-payroll costs like rent, you have to prove that you owed it and that you paid it. They want both sides. So it's kind of an interesting thing because if you just wrote a check to somebody, you could be writing a check to some fraudulent entity you've set up or you could be writing it to your friend, calling him your landlord, you know, and you guys could be in cahoots, but you have to have something showing that you are legitimately owed something and then you paid it. Or you could be prepaying rent, for example, mm-hmm. and and you need to prove that it's rent for current obligations, for current for the current rent period. Mm-hmm. And so there's all kinds of ways that an auditor, for example, would know to be able to, I don't want to say tick and tie, but I, but, but you would be able to um, 
be able to prove out that the expenses are being, um, that the checks are being paid for at least current expenses. But it seems to me that if someone's putting together an audit file or an audit box, probably, that it's not a bad idea to have a copy of the lease. Mm-hmm. To if your landlord is giving you some kind of rent concession or a, a reduced, either reduced rent or allowing you to pay out rent or, or giving you additional months on the backside of, of the lease mm-hmm. in exchange for not paying rent right now, whatever the, whatever the, whatever the deal is, that could all be documented and put in that file or in that box because three years from now, if someone knocks on your door, um, that's not the time to be running around trying to put all this stuff together. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even like payroll reports, like you don't necessarily remember, you know, why somebody left the company. If you can't remember like why somebody was terminated, I, I recommend keeping any notes on anybody who left during the time, mm-hmm. exactly what happened, keeping any emails to that employee, keeping any communications whatsoever, like a note to the file explaining why they left because that's a big part of the PPP is keeping track of your employees. Um, you know, I, I think you can't, you, you can totally add notes to the file um, because I think, you know, down the road, we're not going to remember our actions because <laughs> this was, this is a stressful year and we're probably going to be trying to, or 2020 was like, we're going to be trying to forget a lot of it, honestly. Um, but, you know, having this and building this documentation now can be super helpful. And then you just don't have to worry about it in the future. And like you might not have access to your payroll reports anymore. Maybe you change software providers and the, the one before, you know, loses your data or whatever. It's it's our responsibility to keep our files in order and, you know, kind of keep our house clean. I, I feel like this is a good, a good moment right now to make Genevieve happy because, <laughs> because Upside has a a product, right? They have a service that does this, that helps organize all this. So why don't you explain what that is and then what your role is and then what's what's the human function in terms Mm -hmm. of of the organization of this file? Mm -hmm. So when, when you use Upside Financials, their PPP Advisor Pro product, that's what we're talking about. Um, you go through the process of, you know, putting in your basic information, just all the stuff you would know, your business, you know, your business name, your address, all that. Um, but then they start to ask you questions about, you know, how you start, how you're spending the money, a couple like key important notes, like where you shut down, um, kind of, did you qualify for some of these like safe harbors? But at any point in time, um, you might not know the answer to it. You can kind of skip over it and that's fine but you put in as much information as you can, and then you upload some documents that you have. And then essentially you get to schedule a call with an advisor. So they, they have it on the borrower to just, you know, kind of give them stuff to get started. And then you get to actually meet with somebody. And that person can walk you through any missing pieces of documentation, or maybe if you thought you had, you were pulling the right number from your payroll journal, but you actually weren't, let's get the right number in there so we can make sure that the supporting documentation is clear. Um, And essentially, they help you kind of hone in all the numbers and then also make sure your documentation file is complete. So do you have your 941s? Do you have your state unemployment? Let's make sure that's dialed in so that it supports your file. And then at the end of the day, they give you 
exactly what you need to go and um, apply for forgiveness directly through your bank. So you have all the answers to you know the questions that you're going to be asked and you have all the files there so they can be uploaded. But let's say the new forgiveness form, let's say you have a loan under 150000 If you do, you still need to have that supporting documentation. So Upside Financial still has that. So it's essentially kind of helping you create your audit file um, where you can have that. Even if you, the bank doesn't necessarily ask for it at forgiveness, you are required to have it, <laughs> which I think is going to be a big missing gap for a lot of people. They're going to say, oh, the bank didn't want it. So I don't need to keep it. They didn't want it. They didn't ask for it. So I, that's one of the good things about Upside is they're going to give it to you regardless of whether or not you have to provide it to the bank. You're going to have it where you can save it digitally, store it away, make some copies, make sure you're covered. So a, a couple of points here. Um, one, Upside and you, for example, don't um, actually submit the forgiveness application for a client. That's the client's job. Correct. Yeah. We're not acting as like direct agents. We're advising on this, on like making sure that you get the right numbers in there, the right documentation, but ultimately the business owner has to make those certifications. Um, so they're, they're supported along the way, obviously, if there's any questions, but, um, yeah, it's on the business owner to actually sign all of that stuff at the end of the day. And second, um, for a small business, this is pretty affordable. The it's a it's it, it's a, a lump uh, it's a it's a single price and mm-hmm. they and you go all the way through the process and then you get the the package and pretty with a bow around it yeah right so um wh- wh- do you know what the price is kind of sorta yeah I think right now it's at four ninety nine for the one time fee mm-hmm. um that is I mean if you're paying a CPA to do that. And you're, you know, paying a CPA their hourly rate. I mean, it's, you're easily going to be paying much higher fees than that. So I, I love the flat rate option because I think it makes, it makes it a lot more predictable. I like that from a CFO perspective, <laughs> a predictable price that I don't have to worry about any variability in. It definitely makes me happy. And it's probably deductible, right? Oh, yeah. That's absolutely. a business expense, right? Absolutely. That's a business expense for yeah. sure. And it's and it's interesting to me that um, that's about an hour of your time, roughly. Yeah, so, I mean that that's what I charge for my one hour clarity calls. Mm-hmm. So I, that's when I'm when I'm telling people like right now. First of all, I might not be able to take you for a little bit, so you want me to help you, but why not use the people who are have can take you, and you're going to get probably more than an hour of their time. And then they're going to be doing the process for you and also helping you package up documentation. I can't do that in an hour. There's no way I can do that in an right. hour. <laughs> so I'm like, from a fiscal perspective, and because I, I trust the work that they're doing, like, you should use them. Like, that makes sense. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel like we've done our job with Upside right now. So that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, why don't we talk about the second draw, PPP? Um, because... It, it it feels like it's confusing that um, I have to have less revenue in a quarter than the corresponding revenue the year before in order to qualify. Mm-hmm. And 
And if I understand it, it's revenue based. It's not profit based. It's not expensive. It's pure revenue to revenue. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, is that proved out by books and records? Uh, if you're on, uh, if you're on cash or you're on accrual, you have to stay on cash. You have to stay on accrual. How, how, how does that work? Yeah. The, um, the loss of revenue is something that we're finding some people are having a hard time proving out. Um, and this is, this is indicative again of the types of small businesses that probably need it the most are sometimes the ones that don't keep, you know, quarterly records or they don't keep, um, you know, this is not something that's super easy to, oops, I shouldn't have turned on. Um, I'll go back. Um, The businesses aren't finding it easy to to, to yeah. qualify. Yeah. So I would say this is one area where some of the smallest businesses are having a hard time because they don't necessarily keep their quarterly records or they don't they don't necessarily keep financial statements. They might come to their accountant at the end of the year with a box of receipts or like pulling their bank statements or something like that. So um that has been a little bit more of a challenge to pull that information. I would also say like, um, you know, you can use financial statements and you're supposed to use whatever record, you know, cash versus accrual, however you typically do your accounting. So if you are always doing it on cash basis, you would stay cash basis for the purpose of, you know, determining that 25% loss. Mm -hmm. um, I did have somebody message me yesterday and said, I have a 24 Point six seven percent loss. Do I qualify? I'm like, first of all, that's not my answer. But I'm like, if you round up, it's twenty five. But technically, no, that's not twenty five percent. Like that, that shouldn't qualify you. Which is a, it's it's arbitrary. It's it's a number that has been pulled out of uh, of thin air to a certain extent, and it doesn't. I mean, if they're trying to hit, get the money to hard hit businesses. But some people might have had a 25% loss in one quarter and then had 300% growth in the other quarters. So it's kind of an interesting, um, I mean, that's unlikely, but it's an interesting test for the second draw. Well, it also feels like in some ways, this program is self-defeating. Let me, let, let, me, let me tell you what I mean by that. Okay. Uh, um. At the beginning of the first draw PPP, everybody, everybody was anxious. Everybody's business was affected somehow by the, or 99% or of businesses were affected somehow. Um, but there's, there was a cash infusion and the plan was for the cash infusion to actually help businesses succeed. So there were a lot of businesses that didn't take as bad a hit as they thought they were going to take. Some businesses stayed kind of even. Some businesses even did better. There, I, I, I hear from business people all the time that my business actually did better in 2020 than it did in 2019. And then lo and behold, here comes an opportunity under the new legislation. Here comes an opportunity for more money. And they don't really need it. But they really want it, mm -hmm. and because it's free money, and so 
here's kind of a, 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 a conversation about the reality of doing business and why it's important to stay in your zone and to make your business successful and not overreach because the, the, the tipping point into fraud, which is a whole conversation that you and I had on your podcast, the tipping point for fraud is so right there for everybody. It's, it's, it would be so easy to round up from 24 to 25%. And then, and then you could spend years looking over your shoulder, wondering whether anyone's ever going to find that 1%. Mm-hmm. So what, what are you finding right now? Um, I think, I think there's a lot there. Um, absolutely. I, the first thing I thought with that, <laughs> that you would need to prove out your revenue loss. The first thing I thought is people are just going to go in and change dates on when they receive money. Who, who, like if you're, if you're keeping QuickBooks, like there's, there's no way, I mean, there's no reason why that won't happen. Um, so I, you know, as much as I want that to be, um, not the case, if it's a difference between you receiving another hundred thousand dollars for your business, that's potentially free. Or if it's the difference between, you know, just, I, it, I know it's going to happen. People are going to do it. Um, I have to have this conversation a lot with my clients and the people who come to me like, and this is through clarity calls or the people who, um, even, even YouTube comments, I don't consider those people, my clients, my YouTube content is educational. It's not advice. Yeah. Um, but you know, people are like, Oh, can I do this? Can I do that? And it's like, think about this before you do that. Think about this before you do that. I think that's half of my job right now is to kind of guide people in a, um, in a way of, thinking through it that, you know, do you feel like you can honestly claim X, Y, or Z? And this is a conversation I've had with some clients that are doing okay, but technically qualify for the loan. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you feel good about it? Now all the SBA, I mean, all these loans are public too. So are you happy to have your name listed on there with how much you got? Are you... Um, can you say, can you honestly have some sort of narrative understanding that you do have enough uncertainty in order to take this loan? And a lot of people are like, "Mm." (laughs) you know, it's, it becomes like a real, um, you know, can you sleep well at night knowing that you took this money that you probably don't need? And that's where I'm, I'm hoping that people are going to make the choice to not take it, but ultimately it's not my decision. So that's where it comes down to, I can advise you on what I think, but I, I don't control anybody. <laughs> so you don't have to be the guy who bought the Lamborghini mm-hmm. in, in order to wander into this area of discernment. Yeah. And so so um, here, here's an example. There are people who legitimately have to file a, uh, amended 2019 tax returns for, for legitimate business reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that if you took out a PPP or a P- PPP loan and you're filing an amended 2019, this is part of the conversation you have to have with your tax preparer and CFO. 
to see how this decision affects you in reality and also how it will affect the appearance of of what the new numbers will will be mm-hmm. have have you made yourself qualified by filing an amended return mm-hmm. is a different is a different conversation than actually having to file an amended 2019 because um, new information has come to bear that you didn't know about and you have to make that and you have to file that. That, that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's probably remedied by if you legitimately did it for a business purpose, have the documentation to prove it out. Mm-hmm. It kind of comes back to like, you know, making sure it's really clear that this is above, above board and it has supporting documentation. If you all of a sudden, you know, this is this is where people start playing with numbers and they you know are trying to like lower their taxes lower their taxes lower their taxes but then all of a sudden this program comes out where you know it's kind of based on you know what was your net income your if your net income was always zero or negative because you're trying to avoid taxes and then all of a sudden you're amending a tax return to it no 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 i actually had profit that year oh okay like you know that that's where um you know, I think it's going to raise red flags for sure. Um, and yeah, I think you have to have documentation to prove out any changes in revenue or expenses. And um, there, are, there, are, there are a lot of particulars when it comes to, um, <clears throat> and it may not be PPP loan specific, but there are particulars in terms of strategies, for example, uh, for uh, depreciation now. Mm-hmm. Like, like I know there are uh, there are people who uh, um, are uh, running out getting uh, six thousand pound SUVs in order to uh, uh, take the full depreciation in the first year, mm-hmm. and all of these these conversations have new meaning in light of the of what's going on, and uh, and that's why I think it's important to have uh, not only a good accountant but have someone like you around to help walk people through all of that. Yeah. It's funny how many conversations I've had about cars this past <laughs> December. It's like, what, what is the, who, who wrote an article about cars and now everybody wants, Oh, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's, it's always happened. It's always happened. I know that's a thing. I have a very, um, I, I have a much more conservative take than a lot of CPAs on that. Um, but I, I think the important part this year has been, um, just just the the realization that it makes sense to have somebody in your court yeah in your financials in your small business yeah. like so i hear so many times my cpa won't answer my call my you know i never talk to my tax accountant until like they're demanding for documents at the end of the year you know um my bookkeeper can't help me they're just you know they're just recording numbers which is kind of what a bookkeeper should do so you know like making sure you have somebody in your court that you can talk to about financial information has been proven this year as being such an essential value add to any organization. So accountants this year, we're tired. Like we're really tired. We all need vacations in a major way. Um, It's been an extreme year for extreme accounting (laughs) 2020, but um, you know, we're tired, but like we're going to keep doing the work because like our clients need us. So it's, it's, and I, and I, we're, seen, I, we're seen as valuable business advisors at this point, which 
I think is where we always should be, but maybe this year has kind of proved out that like, yeah, if you, if you have somebody on your side, that's really watching out for you, it can be a game changer. And not to belabor, belabor the, um, the, um, automobile appreciation conversation, but for, for anybody watching or listening, I, I, I just want you to know that every one of these points is a tangent point if it if it affects you so you really need again this is not legal or tax advice mm-hmm. but you need to have an understanding of concepts like depreciation recapture like what that really means in your situation if you're if you're going to take the full depreciation on a car in the in the first year so this is these are the type of things that are not intuitive you really have to understand the tax code and mm-hmm. and I'm I'm not an expert. I'm I've just run businesses, so I kind I kind of sort of know about these things. How um, you want to talk about in to- the employee retention tax credit for for a moment? Is that is that is that okay? Yeah, we can talk about it a little bit. Um, I'd say I'm still kind of getting getting my feet wet on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can take it there, or mm-hmm. we can touch well, on it. Well, I I think I think the point the, the most important point is that there's a lot of misinformation about there. And actually, under the old rules, you couldn't take a PPP and an ERTC um, and apply them at the same time. Correct, yeah. Um, but now you can, but it can't be for the same, for, for the same payroll, payroll periods. Mm-hmm. So um, potentially, you could have uh, be under PPP for, say, two and a half months. Which is basically all all of your PPP money could basically be spent out in about two and a half months, if, unless you're a restaurant, I guess. But then you have a, a an opportunity to get money back um, in terms of a of a tax credit from the government. So wh- why don't you just explain generally what that is, and yeah. we won't we, we won't we won't go we won't go too far into that. Yeah. So when the, when the CARES Act first came out and we had this opportunity to have either or, um, it was either employee retention credits. So it was giving the benefit of somewhere around $5,000. If you paid wages up to 10,000, mm-hmm. you, um, could get a credit back of 50% of those wages you paid out to the employee, um, to, you know, get that credit back. So some people were choosing PVP over ERC or choosing PVP or ERC, you know, one over the other, because um, certain, you know, if you had a low enough wage amount, you know, that you couldn't spend it in eight weeks, because that's what we originally thought. The PPP exactly. was. Mm-hmm. So it made sense to maybe spread out the employee retention credits for a longer period of time and get like essentially more money out of out of the whole, you know, the whole program. So people were electing into that. Um, and I, I think it worked for a lot of people. And it was a credit. It wasn't like, an annual credit where it's on your federal tax return where you get it back at the end of the year, it was directly on your 941. So if you had earned, you know, $3,000 of credit, you would apply that to your taxes directly on your 941s. Um, and then if there was overages, you could actually get a cash back, cash back on the overages and the rebates. Mm-hmm. Um, so people have been accumulating those last year. Um, now we have kind of ERC one and ERC two almost, or ERC 2020 and ERC 2021. Um, now they're saying, well, actually you can get both, but if you want to go back, 
and try to get 2020, you have to you have to have still had a revenue decline of 50%, which is a much bigger revenue decline than what we're talking about for the revenue decline in, um, in uh, 20 for second round PVP, but you can potentially take ERCs um, if it's not overlapped the PPP wages, you didn't use those funds for PPP forgiveness, then you could potentially use that, you know, those wages for ERC. And then now 2021, they've upped the amount that you could potentially get. So they're saying you can pay wages. You'll only have to prove a 20% revenue decline. Exactly. Um, in 2021. Um, but you get like twice, almost twice as much, no, more than twice. Um, you can pay up to $10,000 of wages each quarter for Q1 and Q2. And then you get 70% of the wages paid back in an ERC. But what's happening, what I'm seeing practically is that people are going to be getting PPP2 and then have a crossover of wages there where maybe they, they might be able to take some ERC for Q1 potentially, but probably mm -hmm. some of Q2 is going to be PPP wages. So um, it'll be interesting to kind of see how it actually plays out in practicality. I think maybe they were trying to help those people maybe who didn't quite reach the um, maybe the 25% revenue decline. Maybe they're trying to help those people out yeah. with the ERC. So it'll, it's, it's going to be interesting to kind of hopefully get more guidance soon on exactly how we apply it and any kind of rules around, you know, it, it does it have to be a full quarter before we, you know, what if like a tiny bit of PPP was paid, you know, at the beginning of October, because a lot of people's covered periods ended, you know, October 5th, 10th, can you use the rest of the wages for the rest of the quarter? Or do you have to have a clean quarter? Quote unquote. I don't exactly, you know, I, it's a, it's a little bit blurry at this point. So I, I know we got a little bit into the weeds there for, yeah. for a few <laughs> minutes, but the, but the big takeaway point here is, is that there is, there, there are strategies. The strategies are evolving to take advantage of any of these opportunities. Your, 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 your revenues had to go down. So if your business is doing great, if it's doing better, then this is not really the area that you're going to be focusing on. And so I think that this is probably a, 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 a great point to start talking about. Um, what, what, what do you see as the big challenges and opportunities for small businesses going forward? Because, um, You've been in the trenches with people beforehand. It was it, it, it was not easy even before the pandemic. Um, it's always a challenge when you're in a startup situation or in your small business situation. And um, now, of course, um, the tsunami hit everybody mm -hmm. um, and uh, affecting some differently than others. Um, and now um, it feels like, well, we're right on the precipice of a new government tomorrow. And all kinds of new opportunities and, and it can be scary for people. So how, how do you see the climate for small business? Do you see that the government is going to be super helpful that, um, stay, uh, um, for, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but, um, it's the time to be super flexible, to be understanding that everybody's in the same position that we, that um, the idea is to 
is to make it through a little bit at a time and then see what's coming down the road. And, and um, so uh, I'm, I'm tired of talking to you or talking for you. So, <laughs> so you can talk for yourself now. Um, I think I was, I was just in an all day strategy meeting for a client yesterday. And it was interesting to be strategizing with a group of people in a time like this. Because, you know, essentially we're trying to get into the minds of, we're trying to get into the minds of consumers. We're trying to get into the minds of the people buying the service, um, buying the product. And um, there's so many different ways you could go with it. I, I think, it, you know, I mean, we've got, we've got businesses that are being affected in lots of different ways. But I, I think the, the ones that are doing the best right now are the ones that are really understanding their customers, understanding where the, what their customers need, understanding what their clients need. You know, the ones that have moved to offering virtual services where they were offering in person before, the ones that, um, you know, are building out outdoor spaces in order to accommodate, you know, comfort in an outdoor space. Like those restaurants are, are the ones that are, you know, surviving where the ones that aren't, you know, are the ones that maybe never had a website and never were able to take online ordering. The ones that, you know, um, we're inflexible to the changing times or the ones that are closing, um, you know, and there's some industries that are just shut down kind of no matter how much you flex, that's not going to help. I mean, you know, I, I, I think there's some reality of that. You, there's only so long you can last with zero revenue, you know, if you're completely shut down. Um, but I, I think it's the ones that are kind of staying on top of what are the needs now? Because the needs now are different than the needs before. Those that are really trying to think through, like, how do I, how do I get to my people? What do my people need? Like my customers, the clients are, you know, if you're a product service business, whichever, whichever one, you know, are you really addressing the need? Because that's what business is. People are buying goods, buying services because they want something or need something. So if you're keeping a pulse on that, you're going to be able to, and you're willing to be flexible, you're going to be more likely to survive. But I think what we're seeing is we're seeing inflexibility and unwillingness to change in a lot of ways. And then we're seeing, you know, things close down from there. Now there are the victims of just like, like I said, there's some some industries that are just going to die. Like I'm not not maybe full industries, but there's going to be some services and businesses right now that just are not going to be able to make it. And we understand that it might not be because of their lack of flexibility. I don't want to, you know, be mean to them. <laughs> um, but it's it's also you know the people who are kind of prepared. You weren't already in a hole that you couldn't dig out of, and then you know a pandemic hits. Um, you know, I, I think it it does take it does take some understanding that things have changed and your business needs to change with it. So, so here's a little case study um, because we probably have maybe 10 more minutes to talk. So here's a little case study. Um, My wife's a yoga instructor Mm -hmm. and uh, believe it, despite all outward appearances, I actually do yoga. So I I know it's, I know it's, it's, it's impossible to see that by looking at me, (laughs) but but my wife's a yoga instructor, so we have a lot of friends in the yoga world and um, a lot of friends who own yoga studios. 
Mm-hmm. And there's a business that's been greatly affected, um, not just because um, that they can't have people in person come to their yoga studios, but there's a proliferation of of yoga services online now. Yes, that that um, everyone's competing against one another differently um, because um, yoga studios are very geographically centric. You know, you have a yoga studio in your town. And now, um, with on, you have a lot more choices online. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a standard business problem that's happened all the way since the beginning of the telegraph. Mm-hmm. It's all, you know, it's always mm-hmm. a competition issue versus technology. So, um, a yoga studio comes to you, comes to you, comes to me and says, we can't make it. Nobody's coming in. We're going to close down. And, to me, this is the perfect opportunity to be able to like sort out the difference between what is the, the likely um, trajectory of the business and what does the owner of the business need in order to survive the next year. Let's just call it a year. Mm-hmm. Because if that yoga studio has no expenses other than rent, really, then the conversation with the landlord simply could be as simple as I can't pay you rent, mm-hmm. but you have no one else to rent the space over this year. You're in the same, you're in the same boat I am. So what can we do just to put a placeholder in for this year? And then a year from now, we'll, we'll or, or so we'll, we'll figure out where we are without actually having to shut down. But then the owner, it's a small business, the owner still has bills to pay mm-hmm. and has rent or childcare or whatever, whatever, the, whatever the expenses are. So here's what kind of advice do you give? And then here's some PPP money that comes in. And the PPP money is for specific purposes. Mm-hmm. And it may not relate to this scenario uh, well where the business is going to be dormant, but the owner still has to feed their family. Mm-hmm. So, what, so what kind of thinking goes into that? Yeah, I mean, I think the the long term kind of planning, understanding the expenses is a huge piece. Like how much, how much really, you know, how much does the business need to survive, and then how much does the business owner need to survive? Are two like key questions. I think you set that up, teed that up. Um, I would also, I, and, and I do that, like, I always look, you know, a 12 month rolling forward, you know, what, what does that look like? You know, maybe we have some spikes of expenses or something like, what Mm -hmm. do we actually need? Um, How can we cut expenses as much as possible? Talk to the landlord, see what we can do. Is there some way to sublease to somebody who could use the space right now? Is that a little way to get like a little bit of revenue in to somebody who? You know, is there some way to use the space flex, like in a, in a flexible environment? Is there some way to, you know, potentially get some money back for the service that maybe is not core fundamental of the yoga business, but it could potentially like help support that? Um, you know, if, if the, and then my, my big question to the business owner would always be, do you want to continue this business? Is it your goal to continue? Like, is this what you, where you see yourself in five years, three years, five years? Um, because if it's not, maybe now's a good time to just close up shot, cut, cut losses, and you can go along your way. 
and not have the overhead of a lease that, you know, you're trying to get out of and whatnot. Like it, you know, if, is it, is it time? Is it time to close it? If it's not time to close it, let's think creatively on what we can do to keep it open and keep it, you know, even if it's dormant, um, you know, I, I have had this conversations with gym owners because it is, it is like online fitness. There's lots of amazing tools out there and it's price-based competition who can be lower. So small businesses can't play that game typically. So they have to play a differentiation game typically. So maybe they're really good or people follow them for a very specific reason that is different than the online providers. Why are they different? What are they doing? Like if you can't differentiate yourself, you're not going to compete on price because you're never going to have the volumes to get you to where you need to be in like a small business. So I mean, I've seen people take it lots of different ways. Um, you know, maybe it's time. I mean, it takes a long time to build a YouTube channel, but some people might start there at that point in time. Maybe they have a little bit of extra time and maybe grow that. Maybe they build in another service offering products. Maybe they start sourcing products and, you know, having an e-commerce side to their business. Like they can start doing some other things that, um, you know, maybe they start providing information in a different way, you know, that could potentially generate some revenue. So it's kind of a matter of like, where do they want to take the business? And then how do we think creatively to be able to enable that? And then if the PPP money made sense to, you know, keep it, maybe you can't get your rent any lower and you do need to have some money to cover, you know, to cover the costs. Maybe it makes sense to take PPP because it could be some owner's compensation to come home and then it could also cover some rent. So it would just all be kind of part of the conversation of how do we make this work and what are the best strategic decisions in order to do that? So you could qualify for PPP, but not qualify for PPP forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And that could, be, that could be a strategy to get you through uh, X amount of time period. And you could, you could do that eyes open going in. Mm-hmm. Because you've lost your your employee base, for example, mm-hmm. and it's not going to come back fast enough in order for you to qualify for forgiveness. Yeah, because the the forgiveness quotient is kind of based off of payroll costs. So if you don't have at least sixty percent of the loan on payroll costs, you can't include any non payroll costs, or you can include up to a certain amount, but yeah. that sixty percent, if if you spent at least 60% on payroll costs, then you can spend the other 40% on rent. If you spend less than 60% on payroll costs, then it reduces your total amount of forgiveness kind of proportionally. So um, if somebody got a PPP loan, used it all for rent, none of it would be forgivable, but it's still a 1% loan over five years. So that could be a potential strategy for people. I wasn't recommending anybody take that um, because like when it first started, because it was a two-year loan. And a two-year term on $100,000 is actually a lot of cash to come up with. A lot of cash, yeah. So, you know, if you you maybe had $20,000 and it was over five years, that might be something that's doable. You have to look at those payments and see Mm -hmm. if it's something that you would be willing to take Mm -hmm. on. Um, I would say it would be, it's a very good interest rate, 1%. um, But you have to know that you have that long-term viability to be able to pay it back, which, you know, you and I have talked about for sure. Yeah. So um, just one, one other thought um, before um, I kind of ask you about takeaways or key takeaways. 
Um, so I, th- I find it really interesting that the strategy to get through this is very specific to th- that business, that owner, that market, where it's going. And for example, um, you have your business and we have our ministry and we're, we're promoting each other. We're, we're promoting these videos. This is part of what we do. Mm-hmm. And your, the people who um, are attracted to you are people who would watch YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. The people who are attracted to our, our ministry, basically people who have white collar uh, crime issues, they don't watch YouTube videos. <laughs> they, uh, or, or maybe they do in the middle of the night if they're really having a, a big problem. They're, they're scouring the internet for problems. Right. But, but mostly people who are prosecuted for white collar um, crimes are, say, mid 40s and up. Mm-hmm. And so it's a different way of dealing with them in terms of technology. Mm-hmm. And, and, and we all have limited amounts of money we can spend on our, on our promotion, on our marketing, on our whatever. And, and this, for example, this is not the time, and I'm just using our ministry as an example. This is not the time for us to try to be in, investing in massive YouTube followers. Mm-hmm. It's just not the right time for that. It's just time for us to understand where our market is and how do we reach them and how do we access, allow them access to us. And so it's been fascinating being a fly on the wall for the last couple of weeks, watching you reach out to your people and how they respond to you. Mm-hmm. So just before we get into takeaways, how is it that you made the decision early in, in had me last year for to become an online guru for PPP and EIDL loans? What, what was your thinking behind that? And were you at like ahead of the curve? Did you say, this is something that I should do and I should do now? Mm-hmm. Um, definitely was never my in my mind to become a guru <laughs> um, on this. And, you know, thinking back, I have some other CPA friends that are like, Hannah, are you happy that you decided to do this? <laughs> because this has um, been a lot of work over the past year. But the truth is, is that I am happy that I have done it. Um, but it was all driven off of, um, I did have an existing YouTube channel that I kind of revived back in March, just actually from a strategic objective I had in January to say, hey, I had a couple videos that brought me some leads for my consulting business for my virtual CFO services. So maybe it makes sense to lean into YouTube um, because I was thinking about my strategy for growing the firm and why not lean into YouTube a little bit? Like I, I that's something I can do. I can do video. Let's, let's try it. Um, it was bringing me decent leads. So I, I thought, stepping into it would be a good thing. And then I, I originally heard about PPP and my, I was shocked. I, I was, I was absolutely floored at what it could do for small business that I, and then I realized it was first come first serve and it, and then it was panic. It was shock and panic <laughs> <laughs> because I was panicking to try to understand it enough to tell my clients because I knew some of them would really be able to use it. And then that reached, then that transferred into a Facebook live for friends, like another CPA friend of mine, we did like a joint um, explanation of the program. 
And we did it for, you know, our audiences, which are pretty small on Facebook. But then I put that up on YouTube because I was like, oh, this will get a, a hopefully a broader reach here. Um, and then I started realizing that people were looking for that information. And then I realized that I could explain it. And it was, it was a, it was just a natural people understood it when I explained it. So it was helpful. So I kept doing it. And then there was another piece of information that came out and I needed to explain that. And then there was another information. (laughs) So then it just became this thing that it was like, oh, every week there was something new to explain that people really needed help understanding. Mm -hmm. And then I started to realize how many people did not know, um, did not know, you know, anything about the program, did not have anybody in their court to explain that to them, or they would go to their CPA. The CPA would say, talk to the bank. They'd go to their bank. The bank would say, talk to your CPA. And they would just get this runaround loop. Nobody would explain anything to them because those people weren't doing the research. So it kind of just, and it came to a growth of my YouTube channel, which has now become like a a bigger thing and more people are kind of relying on me for information. Um, So it's continued just out of a, a need to have, um, you need to help. And I mean, I like, I like the way it feels to help people. So I keep doing that, but also it's allowing me to have a bigger impact than just me talking one-on-one to clients. And that's where, um, I mean, I want to educate and I want to have impact. And so YouTube is a fabulous place for me to be able to do that. So both of us really are, are, are case studies in, in how to take something that's negative Mm-hmm. and turn it into something positive mm-hmm. um, and for different reasons. Well, really for the same reason, but you're helping people through their, through, understand these issues and you're, you've become a key player in that. And I'm not going to ask you to do any of the Hannah faces you have on your, on your, uh, <laughs> <laughs> on your, on your promos, you know, the ones where you, where you, where you point fingers and stuff, Oh my goodness! which, which, which works, I'm, I'm sure. And, but, I saw it as the tipping point for this huge inquiry into fraud mm-hmm. that is going to roll out over the next five years. It's going to be a absolutely, yeah. and and it just it was a raw coincidence. It was fate that um, I'm the only person out there who's promoting the fact that I went to prison for SBA loan fraud. It's, right. it's, it's not something that most people want to talk about, right? <laughs> Um, so, um, in the last minute or two, why don't you just tell us a couple of key takeaways that you want people to remember this podcast, uh, um, by, and then, uh, give your, um, your contact information, which of course will be all in the show notes and everything too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say, um, the key takeaway is really just to, to think through your decisions. And if you do choose to, you know, use SBA money, if you do choose to um, take a loan, you know, make sure that you're getting the support that you need to do it right and to document it correctly. Um, I think that is a huge takeaway. Um, but also just to kind of stay sober minded and look forward in your business and don't be so focused on the past because the past is the past and we've got to make good decisions for the next step. And I think that that, that means that, you know, you need people to help sometimes and that's okay. We all need help. Um, but, you know, take the next step with 
you know, intention and clarity as you go forward. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, yeah. And why don't you give us your, uh, all your contact information. Yeah. So um, my company name is Clara CFO Group. So you can find us um, all sorts of places. So YouTube is at Clara CFO Group and ClaraCFO.com is the website. And um, we kind of, I'm, I'm not much on Instagram, but it's at Clara CFO Group on Instagram and then Clara CFO Group on Facebook as well. And your phone number and your uh, <laughs> social security. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we're going to leave that out of the podcast <laughs> today. <laughs> well, um, Hannah Smolinski, thank you so much. This was this went great. I mean, I, I to have talked to you now uh, twice in a couple of days and to uh, have all new, fresh information has really been a joy. And um, um, so, obviously, uh, you've already made yourself a resource to uh, to my crowd, which I appreciate. And, um, and people are already asking. So I think that's, uh, I think it's, it's been a blessing and a gift to all of us to have you on our podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.